0: Hi, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we talked to Kelsey Suchiyama, a recent graduate from NYU's Stern School of Business. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries.
1: I'm Danielle Arzaga. I'm Catherine Tedrow.
0: And I'm Lauren Hill. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing
1: our industry. In a previous episode, we talked about the Rana Plaza collapse, unpacking the evolution of the compliance movement in the industry, including the development of the Accord, a legally binding agreement between brands and trade unions to work towards a safe and healthy garment and textile industry in Bangladesh, which is ending soon.
2: We also talked a lot about the impacts of COVID-19 on factories and garment workers, and today we're excited to take this conversation a level deeper. We're speaking to Kelsey Suchiyama, a recent graduate from the NYU Stern School of Business. Kelsey has been interning with us, and we have her to thank for her incredible writing skills and hopping on board with us at the very beginning of this podcast. She approaches the industry with a human and women's rights lens and is eager to make an impact on the social side of sustainability in the fashion industry. Hey, Kelsey, thanks for joining us today.
3: Hi, Kat, Lauren, and Danielle. Thank you for having me.
2: We're super excited to have you on the podcast since you've been so intimately involved with every episode to date. So thank you for being here. To kick us off, can you tell us more about your focus in gender
3: studies and how it's influenced your business paradigm? Yeah, so gender studies really broadened my perspective and encouraged me to consider multiple stakeholders. And I think especially in a way that sees them as equal because I think even when talking about stakeholders and in the business school you know stakeholder capitalism is generally accepted over shareholder capitalism but there is still that hierarchy in approaching stakeholders and viewing them so I think being able to just see the value in all stakeholders and not you know putting on this guise of of caring about all stakeholders but really still favoring some over the others and I also just, you know, always wanting to dig deeper and question what's being presented. In business school, there's a tendency to focus on numbers and statistics and and graphs and such, and not always consider what is behind all of that. And my focus in gender studies, I think, really made me think about maybe who's being represented by those graphs or what the history is that has led to those specific conditions and to always want to, you know, ask more questions and not just take something as given. If we're talking about a business strategy, maybe we're just saying go to this country because it has cheap labor, but I want to know more about why they have cheap labor or what led to that, you know, that unequal relationship where our brand from the U.S. may be manufacturing in a country like Bangladesh.
2: Yeah, your report at the end of your last academic year seemed like some really critical cumulative work that you had done. How did this
3: lens affect that work when you approached that project with your team? What I was just saying about, you know, the emphasis on multiple stakeholders, so understanding how each player plays a role in these overall relationships and also just the degrees of power That was a big part in understanding that no one's really coming to it, coming to these relationships on equal footing and understanding why that is. And, you know, just taking that into account in the analysis, it gets messier and more complicated when you try to have to consider all the greater histories. But I think it's absolutely essential to do that. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the report that your team did? So we started with a question of how are garment workers in Bangladesh organizing and some of the obstacles we're facing. However, that is it was a very large question to address in in a small amount of time and especially of how to communicate with garment workers directly would be a very arduous process. So we kind of evolved the project into how is organizing in represented by international organizations and various stakeholder perspectives. And, you know, kind of what all the implications are. So we looked at different stakeholder groups like Fashion Revolution, the Pay Up Campaign, the Bangladeshi Center for Worker Solidarity, and as well as legislation like the Accord and the Alliance and just how they represented garment workers. So
0: narrowing on Bangladesh a little bit in that report and in your work you've referenced the work of Bangladeshi feminist and labor scholar Dr. Dina Siddiqui and she talks about this ethical obligation to save women workers and we were curious
3: your perspective on how and where we see this show up in the fashion industry today. I think we see it from global organizations that rely on social media I think to garner a lot of support and that social media gets very complicated when you're trying to appeal to as many people as possible, and also present it in a very digestible and fast way. Because social media um, inherently is just, um, you know, consuming everything, so many things all the time. So I think when you're trying to do something like that, it's easy. You want to simplify it and and draw narratives that people know and understand, such as this, you know, quote, ethical obligation to save women workers, that is a common narrative that has been used. So I think, you know, just relying on that is an easier thing for global organizations to do. And as a result, there's little incentive to kind of get rid of this narrative because they are, these um, labor activists are getting the support and can think that they're, You know, making a a difference. And although the intentions may be good, there's all these unintended consequences by drawing on this pre existing narrative.
0: It's interesting you talk about social media because not too long ago, I think maybe it was in the last few months, Slow Factory put out some communications on their Instagram feed about kind of changing their strategy for social media engagement and no longer participating in in like a hyper consumption of social media content because it lacks intention and contributes to some of the dysfunctions we see in the industry. So I just think it's really interesting that you bring that up and so important for those of us who engage through social media to really think about what impacts are we having and how are we contributing to harmful conceptions of not only garment workers but of the industry because we're just like pumping out content all the time that it kind of lacks a deeper engagement because we're just like looking at something really quickly and then Mm -hmm. moving forward. In your report, you also discuss how the theories of the universal woman and the global garment worker were used in fashion revolutions who made my clothes campaign, which I think also really ties to, to this conversation around social media and social media engagement as a way to kind of drive activism in the social justice space in the industry. We were hoping first that you could explain to our audience kind of what the stereotype of the universal woman and global worker is. And then we have a a more specific question for you on that.
3: Yeah. So the universal woman or, you know, third world worker is someone who's just passive, helpless, voiceless, and just overall you know lacking agency and is just in needed in need of being saved by northern labor activists so there isn't really a, an accounting for specificities she's just kind of become a an emblem and presented as this one of many and not really getting into the complexities and realities so in the words of of dr Siddiqui this these depictions Quote attribute more personality and action to capital and patriarchy than to the subjects of exploitation. So again, going back, she's she's really just become an emblem and isn't really a, a person at this point.
0: And you're going into it a little bit, but why is this stereotype detrimental to actually addressing injustice in supply chains
3: and what you know kind of the industry is currently calling worker well-being and global supply chains? Yeah. So the the problem with this is that it it erases space and place. So there isn't really an accounting for all the specific relationships and, and power dynamics at play, whether that has to do with gender, race, sexuality, you know, all of these get kind of erased and just presenting them as this monolith without any specificities. So just another quote from Dr. Siddiqui, particularities of place, people, and the specificity of localized power structures disappeared in such globalizing frameworks, which could not adequately theorize the experience of work across space. So you really do have to acknowledge that you can't just present these top-down solutions. You have to really understand what's going on before and working collaboratively. And, you know, there are as I just kind of said, there are multiple fields of power and you can't just address some of them without and ignore others because that alone, you know, will just reinforce kind of the conditions that have already been at play and not addressing all these complex, messy realities. You know, activists and organizations might be able to come up with quick and and kind of simpler solutions, but they're inevitably going to fail because, If you're not asking the right question, you aren't going to get the right answer. You have to address all of the fields of power and all the dynamics at play. And also just playing into these cultural scripts of, of, you know, quote, saving third world women. They reinforce global hierarchies as well and consumer worker hierarchies. And, you know, they that in and of itself enacts its own violence on on people that you think you might be saving, quote, saving, but you aren't actually doing that. And also just Dr. Siddiqui in her, in her paper also just talks about these top-down approaches or solutions that are based on abstract notions of individual rights. And can, she gives an example of trying to eliminate child labor in the 90s. And there was um, a bill that was going to be passed, the Harkins Bill, which was, you know, enacted to stop child labor However, when around the time that was going to happen, factory owners dismissed thousands of child workers, which then, many of whom supported their families with these salaries, and it then forced them into unregulated informal sectors. So they were um, involved in more precarious working conditions than they were before. So even these solutions that that you like on paper may sound good, they they have their own consequences it wasn't until local human rights organizations had already been taking steps to eliminate child labor and you know local activists once they intervened to help and create and negotiate an agreement that they're able to you know counteract the downsides of the Harkins bill so they paid for schooling for former child workers and the goal was to provide a factory job for an adult family member so you know utilizing these local activists and organizations, many of whom who have been, you know, fighting for a lot of the same things that maybe global organizations and top-down approaches are are aiming to address, you know, you have to work collaboratively with them to understand all the complexities of this work. I think it really requires us, particularly people who are coming,
0: I'm just going to use like really specific examples because I'm trying in my own language to not overgeneralize, you know, Fashion Revolution is an organization that is out of Europe and very active in the United States. So for those of us coming from those contexts, it's really important, I think, to have a lot of humility and ask ourselves, like, what is it that I actually can contribute that's of value to this situation? It's so easy to come in. And I know this isn't people's intentions. But we're really kind of stuck in a paradigm and in a culture of coming in with a lot of, like what's the opposite to humility, arrogance, that we know all of the answers and that what we prescribe is going to be the right way, but because we oftentimes lack cultural humility in our approaches, we miss, to your specific example about child labor, I think like on the surface, we can all agree that we don't want children to work. We want them to have opportunities to get an education. But when you're just looking at the consequence of a more complicated system and not looking at, to your point, the questions of like, why is it like this in the first place? We come up with solutions that are not well fit to the situation. So I appreciate you bringing that up
2: yeah, I wonder if we could kind of ground in like how this does show up in the industry, the top-down approaches, the cookie cutter auditing frameworks, and I think bringing like the brand professional stakeholder into the conversation, too. It's not always labor organizations and nonprofits on the ground. Brands are also, you know, looking to improve social compliance in their supply chain. yet their supplier codes of conduct are like one blanket code for an entire world. And I think that that, kind of goes to the idea of you know what you've been saying Kelsey it's it has to be place based and you know based in local in country knowledge to be able to build policies and and brand brand policies that make sense for each you know factory that a brand might be working with and that's a huge amount of capacity that's why the industry has
3: kind of latched onto the word capacity building. Yeah. And I, it also gets, gets difficult because, you know, people have trouble, you know, including myself admitting how you may be complicit in this and how you may be perpetuating these dynamics. And, you know, again, your intentions may be, may be good, but you still can be causing harm. And I think you have to really acknowledge your own role. And especially, you know, if we're, Like, you know, if someone who's based in the U.S. like myself, like what's my role in and how I vote in the international policies that that affect these industries and, you know, looking at something like that, instead of just saying I'm going to go, quote, over there and fix everything. You know, you like just by living in the U.S., you are having a direct role in, you know, global relationships and how you vote and the different policies being enacted. And I think looking, you know, at your own role, your country's role, all of that is very necessary, and, and acknowledging that when when trying to act in solidarity.
2: Yeah, I, the language of human rights gets so spread from the language of business. I mean, using the term solidarity in a business meeting with a supply chain professional just wouldn't land. And so it's it's so interesting to try and figure out. It's like we all want the same things. You're just using different words, whether you're in, you know, either of those two paradigms. And so it's it is really fascinating, and it's going to be amazing to see what you do with both of these kind of skill sets and focus areas in your life.
3: Yeah, and I think that comes with elevating more voices that don't always have, you know, in the business world. It's not. It doesn't just have to be people with a business background, and and for some reason may think that they have a better understanding of certain issues just because of their education. And I think, you know, a lot of people have stuff of value to contribute and to find a way to elevate all these voices that maybe don't have the same background or education as people who have traditionally been in certain areas and industries, I think is a very important step to take. So a lot of these initiatives
1: that you analyzed in your project I feel like are essentially awareness campaigns for the end consumer to bring up, you know, these very real issues that are happening across the globe and especially in uh, garment supply chains. So I'm wondering. I think it would be interesting also for our audience if you have, you know, you were very critical of of these these different stakeholder groups that you analyze.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the the organizations that we did analyze, you know, we did find some we did have some criticisms, but, you know, they are still doing some good work. And that, again, goes with the, you know, maybe having good intentions, but not always having, or but having some unintended consequences. So I don't, you know, I do want to applaud the work they have been doing. But, But yeah, we did have many criticisms, especially in the portrayal of this third world women worker. So I think just organizations that are, very intentional in how they're fighting for rights and what voices they're using and how they're accounting for specificities. So like Industrial Global Union is one group that really takes into account, I think, the place and space. So, And they have very specific campaigns for the regions they're working in. So in the Philippines, they led a campaign to extend maternity leave, for example, or getting specific union leaders released in countries. And in Bangladesh, they actually played a role in negotiating the accord. So I think a group like that has done a very good job of understanding all the specificities of place. And then there's also just, you know, organizations that don't buy into this all too easy narrative of, quote, saving women workers and ones that center The voices of BIPOC folks and kind of help maybe both activists and just consumers understand how they may be contributing to perpetuating harm. So a group like No White Saviors, they have like resources on how to be an advocate without um, buying into the white savior complex and elevating voices that have previously been that aren't always listened to.
1: I love that you said that and pointed out that even though, you know, these organizations, these initiatives are maybe making some missteps and not communicating in the way that is, you know, most beneficial to the people on the ground, that they're still doing a lot of good work. And I think it is important to not think of things in this paradigm of only good and bad and instead on this continuum of improvement.
0: I totally agree. And I think that the solutions framework that you and your teammates had in your report, I think it really gets at that. And we in the industry, we do need to find a way to be constructively critical and be able to move forward, but be constructively critical of areas where we're all falling short. And that's not to say that people aren't doing good work and and don't have good intentions. And so your solutions framework and your report as kind of asking yourself questions as opposed to having these really specific action recommendations really struck us uh, because we really believe that we all need to be asking ourselves more questions, um, especially those of us who sit in locations where we're often looked to for answers and are listened to the most often. We were curious if you could tell us a little bit more for our audience about what kind of that critical and transformative solidarity with garment workers could look like and what sorts of questions you think that we all need to be asking ourselves?
3: You know, our first question on this list is just why are you starting this campaign? And just being very intentional of where you're going with this, you know, what your goals are in doing this and understanding all the, you know, as I keep saying, you really need to understand like the particularities of space and place and and being very intentional in the way you, if you have you know garment workers directly involved in this campaign you know how are they being represented and and how are you kind of cultivating collaboration and also what even just like what are the limitations of your own work and how you're addressing that and moving forward and i think your own addressing your own your own role as a person of privilege as you were just saying lauren and if you're from let's say the US You know, you are the U.S. does have a neo-colonial relationship with many manufacturing countries. So, if you're coming from the U.S., how are you acknowledging your own role in that and the U.S.'s role in that? And you know, even the history of the relationship between countries and between people. So, I think just you know being very intentional in the way you're running this campaign and and how you're addressing. Maybe some how you are addressing certain problems and even problems with your own campaign. And then also, just in using in collaborating with garment workers directly, this brings up the issue of language justice and how it is a huge burden for, let's say, for the, the specific example of working with Bangladeshi garment workers. If you're working in the US, you know, it is, or I mean, if your organization is based in the US. How are you communicating directly with Bangladeshi garment workers? And garment workers will then have to put in maybe a lot of time and effort into being just being able to communicate with these organizations and how you're kind of addressing that. You know, one of my my friend and partner in this project, one of the partners has this question when they were analyzing the Bangladeshi Center for Worker Solidarity. Quote, We're left wondering why the burden of international solidarity that addresses the structural conditions of garment work and the historical specificity of Bangladeshi workers is placed on garment workers, while expertise is assigned to the international audience. So I think that's just a, something to think about as well as language justice and access to these voices and accounts. If you are using them in the in the campaign, you know how are you using them and how are you even compensating? Garment workers for their efforts because they are putting in a lot of effort just to be able to communicate.
2: Something we didn't even talk about yet today, and I know we need to kind of wrap up, but I mean, obviously, the mask campaigns, the idea that garment workers were so desperate for work during the pandemic that you buy a mask and employ an artisan or buy a mask and save, you know, a garment worker, it was everywhere. And It's just amazing that we haven't, you know, become a little more aware as an industry as a whole yet, or as a sustainable fashion movement.
0: I think that that, that's a good segue actually into our kind of one of our closing questions for you. Because to your point, Kat, you know, that was just what, like eight months ago that this was all happening 12 months ago, not very, very far into the the past. And despite all of our efforts toward progress and a lot of people who have been and continue to critique the industry, you know, like Dr. Siddiqui's articles that you reference in your report, one of them is 12 years old now. So it's not like these ideas are new. And even before that, there have been and have have been will continue to be people who are critiquing the industry and not being heard on a, on a global level. But I think that just leads me wondering from your perspective, what's the number one question that you are asking the industry right now, or the, the question that the industry needs to be answering in order to achieve real change?
3: Yeah, I think I'm wondering right now, you know, what will it take for for organizations and, and activists to, to leave behind these outdated narratives? I think as you're saying, we You know, it's not new that we're seeing these issues with and critiques of narratives or certain solutions and organizations. You know, all all of these are concepts that maybe people are aware of. So, you know, why are we still using them? Uh, There is, you know, maybe it's easier to garner support, but I think as we're becoming, you know, as more people are becoming aware of what some of these unintended consequences may be, like, at what point do do we say enough is enough?
1: Amen to that. <laughs> this is another question we like to ask all of our guests. Who is your unspun hero? So someone that you think is doing incredible work, who's maybe not getting the recognition that they deserve, someone that you want to shout out?
3: Dr. Siddiqui, as I, I've quoted throughout this whole episode and, you know, our our project that we worked on relied heavily on her work. I think she's definitely one of my unspun heroes who has just been, you know, calling out these problematic narratives. And although it might, they might be unpopular opinions. I think they're absolutely necessary and we need to elevate them more in the industry. And as well as you three, Lauren, Kat, and Danielle, I'd like to say that you're also my unspun heroes as just someone who's still trying to learn very much about the industry. You guys have all taught me so much through this podcast. And so I don't know if that counts because your voices are in the industry through this podcast, luckily, but I'd like to give you three a shout out.
1: Thank you. I don't know if we deserve to stand with Dr. Sadiqi. I don't don't know know either.
2: (laughs) <laughs> we're, we're really lucky to have you working with us, Kelsey, and you know that we say that on and offline, but it's such a pleasure to get to just hear you talk more in depth about the lens that you're approaching the industry because it is such a needed lens and so much of this can't be done through policies or trainings or assessments or whatever. It's really going to be that there's a new guard of younger experts coming into the field with a completely different lens. And it's super refreshing.
1: Thank you, Kelsey, so much for joining us today. It was really, really a pleasure to to speak with you and just to hear more about your story and your research. And we're really excited to see what's, what's going to be coming up next
3: for you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun, and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Kelsey Suchiyama, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can find Kelsey on LinkedIn. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at WeArePopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge, and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.